Let's shift gears now to soteriology. We're going to finish up a few comments on the atonement, which we started last week. And then we're going to begin talking about the logical sequence of the works of redemption. I hope you don't find this dry. If you find it dry, raise your hand and tell me it's boring and we'll zip ahead. You're all too nice to do that, unfortunately. Okay. You remember we talked about the four parts of the atonement last time? Sacrifice and substitution. Propitiation. Redemption. Okay? And the last one is redemption and ransom. This is the third one. The last one is reconciliation. Okay? We didn't get to reconciliation last time. There are four Greek words for reconciliation, and they all mean pretty much the same thing. They basically mean restoring a relationship. Okay? This last one has the idea of restoration to favor. They all have to do with the restoration of a broken relationship between God and men. Now, I'm going to come back to this when we talk about the extent of the atonement because an understanding of what's going on in reconciliation is very important in dealing with the question of whether the atonement was limited or unlimited and what bearing that issue has on the question of universalism. You all know what universalism is? Tommy, what's, what's universalism? Okay. Universalism is the idea that everybody gets saved on the basis of what Christ did. Now that idea doesn't fit scripture at all, does it? Okay. Universalism is not true there are reasons why it's not true, and we will talk about those later. Okay? So that was just a quick summary of reconciliation. Now, this is a great statement by a guy named Andrew Murray on the atonement. He says, just as sacrifice is directed to the need created by our guilt, propitiation to the need that arises from the wrath of God, and reconciliation to the need arising from our alienation from God, so redemption is directed to the bondage to which our sins have consigned us. This is in your notes. It's a great statement on what each component of the atonement addresses, which need that we have. Okay? And you can look at that later, but I think that if you stare at it for a while, you'll see that it's very helpful. Now, moving back into the use of the word of redemption in the broad sense, not as a component of the atonement, but the big picture of God saving mankind, okay? There are a number of things that describe what happens in redemption. Now, I have put them in order, basically as I understand them to happen, but as I list these, please recognize that there's some dispute as to what the actual order is. Not everybody would put them in this order. Okay, there is election. Excuse me. There is calling. Now, again, you can look these up. You can look up the passages. These are all in your notes. 
There's regeneration. What's regeneration? Changing. That when my hair starts growing again. Okay, yeah. It's spiritual birth. Jesus called it the new birth. He said you must be born again. The actual term regeneration only happens twice in the New Testament, interestingly. Okay? But the idea that you must be born again or you must be born from above is the same concept, and Jesus talks about that in John chapter 3. And regeneration is obviously the reversal or the undoing of what condition? Yes, yeah, spiritual death. What chapter in the New Testament says that we were all spiritually dead when we started out? Okay, Romans says it in Romans chapter 3. In fact, chapter 1, 2, and 3. There's another one that actually says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. What's that one? Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? So regeneration is essentially the reversal of that condition, if you want to think of it that way. There's repentance. Repentance is associated with faith. Okay? Repentance, as I understand it, is turning from one thing to another thing. It's basically saying, I can't make it on my own. Well, what's the other choice? I need help. And the only source of help is Christ. Okay? Now, some people will argue that repentance isn't part of the gospel message. Um, I, don't, I don't really agree with that. I think the gospel message is stated in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's a call to faith. Sometimes it's a call to repentance. Okay? Repentance emphasizes that you stop believing in one thing and start believing in another thing. Okay? To turn to Christ, you have to give up your reliance upon whatever else you were relying upon before. <coughs> so I do think the two of them go together, and, and I'm not one of these people who wants to throw repentance out of the gospel message. But I will say this. Repentance in the gospel message, although it is a call to recognize that you are a sinner and to seek God to change your life and to clean your life up and to sanctify you, repentance is not saying... I was sinning, now I stopped sinning. It's saying, I was sinning and there was nothing I could do about it. Now I'm turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you please do something about it? And of course, I'll cooperate with you. But going from being a sinner to not being a sinner is not what repentance is about. Because none of us ever do that in our lives, do we? Sorry. Okay. Really yeah, I, I would I would disagree with that on a couple of. Not really. Uh, not gonna say the not well, okay. What what you brought up is very very important. Okay. Um. And it emphasizes the fact that there is a difference between eternal forgiveness and temporal forgiveness. And kind of the best way to illustrate it mm -hmm. is by marriage. Okay. 
I made a covenant with my, my wife and she made a covenant with me and we are married forever. Okay, until the day that one of us dies, we are married. When a person becomes a believer, that person becomes God's child. God adopts that person, seals them with the Holy Spirit, and that person is forever God's child. But just as I can interrupt my fellowship with my wife by sinning against her, and I know it's inconceivable, but she could interrupt her fellowship with me by sinning against me, okay? We as believers can interrupt our fellowship with God by sinning against Him. Now when we do that, we don't sever our relationship with Him. We don't stop being His adopted children. We don't lose the Holy Spirit. We don't become unsaved. Now I do believe that when we have broken fellowship with the Father, we do need to ask forgiveness. I think that's 1 John 1.9. Okay? 1 John 1.9 is a call to seek by repentance, the restoration to an unbroken fellowship with the Father. Sin breaks fellowship, but it never severs the relationship. Now, it doesn't matter. Lots of people died in the midst of their sin. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you lose anything except the enjoyment of fellowship that you might have had during that interval that you were out of fellowship with him and the loss of the opportunity to serve him and build reward in heaven during that interval. Um, you know, if we start playing games, if I die when I'm out of fellowship with God, am I in trouble? That's Roman Catholicism. Well, Sure I do. But she doesn't stop being married to me if I don't. Right, but she doesn't have complete. Her forgiveness of you was not just done once and for all. It has to be done over and over. Sure it does. And the, and the same, the same thing with us with God. I mean, we're constantly falling into sin, and we must constantly seek to be restored to fellowship. But that's, that's, that's what 1 John 1, 9 is about, as I understand it. So I don't think it's an insult to God to ask forgiveness when you've sinned against him. But you're not asking for eternal forgiveness, okay? You're asking for temporal forgiveness, or to put it another way, you're asking to be restored to a happy face-to-face -face relationship with him. You know, it's like when Mi Young and I get into a fight, I'm way over here on this side of the bed, and she's way over here on that side of the bed, and she's looking that way, and I'm looking this way. And the question is, who's going to be the first one to crack and say, I'm sorry? Okay? Well, at that time, we're out of fellowship, but we're still married. Well, yeah, I know, but I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that's that's exactly the right answer. You know, the relationships that we have, flawed as they are, do illustrate our relationship with God in some aspects because we're we are created in His image. So. Exactly. Exactly. How about how about when um, you know the Lord is washing the feet of Peter? I think that's a spiritual example. You know, Peter says, "You can't wash my feet." Jesus said, "You only need your feet to be clean. You're basically clean. And if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have any part with me." And he says, "Well, give me a bath from head to toe." Well, Peter goes from one extreme to the other extreme. But I think I think there's an illustration in there 
you know, dirty feet from walking around in the street is kind of like the kinds of sins that interrupt our fellowship with the Father. We don't, we don't need to go back for eternal forgiveness. That issue is settled. But we do need to go back for temporal forgiveness or the restoration of fellowship or however you want to label it. I think, I think that's, I think that's a biblical concept. Huh? salt. Um, yeah, no, Tommy, you hit it on the head. And interestingly, this ties back into what we were saying earlier about finding what God has promised to do and then asking him to do it. Because what you're talking about is asking God to do what he said he would do, right? This is a, a back, I guess, a little more to what you're saying about repentance. Uh, again, back to um, the adulterous woman. Uh, this is John 8. Hmm. Uh, after there's no one left to condemn her, he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Is he is he calling her to repentance at that point? Well, I think he, I think what he's saying is, I as God care how you live. Um, you know, he's challenging her to seek a higher standard of godliness. And, and, you know, he doesn't want her to go away saying, uh, God doesn't even care. Well, yeah, he, he doesn't want her to think that God doesn't care about her sexual purity. He wants her to understand that God has forgiven her her sexual sin, but he wants her to walk in godliness. You know, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from from uh, from fornication. Okay? Same kind of thing. Yeah. So, anyway, that's that's the way I would understand it, Lori. Um, I do think there's a difference, though, between going back, you know, this is not a jab at the Baptists, okay, but if you're in a Baptist church and every Sunday they have an altar call, going up there every Sunday to say, I want to get saved again, because I sin during the week. That's, at the very least, a misunderstanding of the gospel, and at the worst, it is an insult to God. Okay? So, we do need to keep these things, you know, we need to understand there is a distinction. Your question is really a very good one on that. Okay. Faith. Now, has anybody noticed that we got regeneration before repentance and faith? Okay, Tommy is smiling. I knew you would like this. Okay. I do think that logically, regeneration precedes repentance and refaith. Uh, repentance and faith. Refaith. I, I, do not, I do not think that it precedes them chronologically. But since I believe in total depravity, and I believe that the Spirit must be at work 
to bring the sinner who is in the darkness to the point where he can comprehend his need and see that Christ is the solution for his need, in a sense, regeneration precedes. Okay? This is when your eyes open and you realize that you are drowning and you immediately grab for the life preserver. It's all sort of one event. Okay, now there are people who would say, uh-uh, this is not the way it happens. Uh, I just, I'm wondering what's holding you back from, from believing that regeneration would be the first thing, chronologically. Well, obviously it's not, and, and you'll see why. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I mean I'm talking about before repentance and faith. Oh, chronologically? Chronologically. Okay, chronologically it can't be because, um, well, let, let me say this. I don't think there is such a thing as a regenerate but unforgiven person. Well, then, I guess. I don't think that condition ever persists for a measurable period no, of time. No, it They all have to be connected. Right. But, I mean... A regenerate person is going to repent. They're going to have faith. But I mean, where does salvation? I mean, the salvation. Well, again, I I think I think it's a momentary thing. I really do. They all just happen. I think they all happen simultaneously. Okay. The reason I emphasize that this is prior logically is that I believe that God is sovereign in salvation. Okay. And because only God can regenerate, and because man in his darkened, spiritually dead state is not even capable of responding to God, this thing has to happen first logically. Okay? You know, it's kind of like, I always ask this question, how many of you are watching TV right now? Right now, any of you? Are the radio waves here? No. They are. They're passing right through the room. They're passing right through your brains. Okay? <laughs> they are. But you don't have a receiver. Okay? Now, a spiritually unregenerate person is as incapable of responding to God as you are incapable of watching television without a television receiver. It just goes right through you. Andrew. It doesn't matter. There's still radio waves. Doesn't matter. And the digital signal is carried on an analog carrier, so there. <laughs> right? That was good, Andrew. What? That conversation will continue. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Justification. This is an act of God. We've talked about this already. Just trying to put this all together in a picture. Forgiveness. Now, you're going to say, which comes first, justification or forgiveness? Again, I think all of this is a package. All right? I really do. I don't think you can separate these chronologically. Adoption it is when God makes you his child, when he seals you with the Holy Spirit. Um... You know, it all goes together. Now, excuse me, sanctification is an interesting one. <clears throat> this sanctification is both instantaneous and permanent and progressive and partial. And I'm not 
talking out of both sides of my mouth. You know, it sounds like I am, okay? There's this amazing verse in the book of Hebrews, 10.14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Is that not an interesting statement? Now, the first half of that statement, by one offering he has perfected forever, is essentially a statement. <coughs> that's Philippians 1.6, restated. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Okay? If you are born again, you will be made perfect. It's going to happen. You might go kicking and screaming to it, but if you've been born again, you will be made perfect. Romans 8, 28 to 30. All things happen for the good of those who are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew he called whom he called he we need to look at it. I can never get it right. I'm sorry. Okay. Whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. Now those are all stated essentially in the past tense. But it's not past tense for us yet, is it? None of us are glorified yet. But it's a biblical way of saying that since God has started the process, nothing can prevent it from being completed. And it's as good as done because the one who's going to make it happen is God and God does not screw up. He doesn't start something and not finish it. Okay? Now when Hebrews says, by one offering he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I'll take it in a second. Okay? The first half of that is the statement of God's sovereignty in the process. The second half is the statement of what you are experiencing as a believer. Go ahead. Uh, my question is, is justification the same? We are justified and we are being justified? Um, or, I, I don't know anywhere in Scripture where it speaks about justification in anything but a forensic, declared, legal, completed sense. There might be somewhere, but I, I don't know of it. Except maybe the book of James, where James says a man is justified by works. Okay, there he's talking about visible evidence being given of the change that God has made. But as far as the justification that God does, I'm not aware of anywhere where it's spoken of as anything but a momentary, forensic, legal declaration, you know, written on the books, that kind of thing. If anybody does know of it, I'd be curious to hear of it. Um, perseverance and security. Now, I put these together intentionally to upset you. Okay? Because in some theological traditions, people like to talk about perseverance. In other theological traditions, they like to talk about security. I personally think they're the same thing. We persevere because we are secure in Christ. We persevere because I saw some poster that said it, it's not how hard you hold on him, it's the fact that he will never let go of you or something like that. Okay, we're secure 
not because we hang on to God, but because God will never let go of us. Um, and the last one is glorification. And that's basically resurrection. What's that? That happens later. That happens later, absolutely. Okay, now there is some dispute regarding the order of these events, and I'm just going to broach this subject. We'll probably come back to it again. Now, the ordo solis, this is Latin for the order of salvation, the order of things associated with salvation. The key passage is Romans 8, 29 to 30, which we already read. Notice the statement, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now the order seems to be foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. One of the big disputed issues associated with this, well, I guess I've got this on the next page, okay? The nature of election and the relation to faith and repentance. Okay. Um, what is election? You know, in that verse it says, <coughs> go back to it. Okay, foreknowledge, predestination. Okay. Um, foreknowledge and predestination are generally taken together by people in one theological tradition. I'm basically there, okay? And they call that election. The word election means being chosen, okay? There are some people who understand election as something that God does sovereignly. There are other people who think that election is actually something that God does logically, not chronologically, in response to faith and repentance, okay? If you're an Arminian, if you come from, say, a Methodist kind of theological background, your understanding of Romans 8, where it says, whom he foreknew, these he called, your understanding would be that the foreknowledge there is the foreknowledge of omniscience. God looks down through the corridors of time before he ever created the world, and he sees Pat. He says, Pat is the kind of person who, if he hears the gospel, he will believe. Therefore, I check him down in my book as one of the elect. Now, chronologically, God writing him down as one of the elect precedes Pat's faith. But logically, it follows it, doesn't it? Because God did an experiment. He used his omniscience, and he based his choice on the kind of person that Pat is. What? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, okay. That, that, that is what's called foresight election. I don't think it's biblical. Okay? The other understanding of the statement, whom he foreknew, those he called, is to understand the word foreknow, not as in knowledge in the sense of evaluation of a state of affairs, but knowledge in the sense of unilaterally and sovereignly establishing a relationship. The word there is prognosko. Ginosko is the Greek word that is used to tran translate the Hebrew verb in the Old Testament, know, 
which is used, for example, in Genesis chapter three when it's or Genesis chapter four when it says Adam knew his wife. Okay? And if you take a Calvinist understanding of election, which I do, you understand that Paul is saying that God chooses to establish a relationship with Pat, not because Pat is a great guy, not because, you know, with any of us, not because we're great people, but because he, in his grace and his mercy, picks us. And we are no more likely no more suitable, no more worthy, no more godly, no more intelligent, no more spiritually insightful than anybody else. It's sovereign election by divine fiat, if you will. And the fact that we are among the elect is nothing but evidence of the grace of God. Because the next guy on the street who will go to his death never having been saved, is no worse a person than any of us are. Okay? So that's one of the issues. Another issue is the nature of calling and its relationship to grace. What is calling? Does everybody get the calling? Does everybody get the same kind of grace? You'll see some of this in a few minutes. And there's a logical, chronological relationship of regeneration and faith and repentance. We've already talked about this one. And then there's the biblical teaching on security and perseverance. Now, all of these issues fall into a Calvinistic versus Arminian, or a Calvinistic versus Arminian grid. I guess that's right. Okay? Now, let's start this. I don't think we're going to have time to finish this. Okay? I've got about eight different slides on the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, Please don't think that this is esoteric theological stuff that you should forget. Believe it or not, you should learn this stuff. Because we're talking about a watershed in which on one side, on the Arminian side, you're basically saying that man is sovereign in salvation. On the Calvinistic side, you're saying that God is sovereign in salvation. And I'm going to reveal my hand. I think that this side is not only unbiblical, but it leads to reasons to doubt your security and reasons to doubt that God will complete what he has begun. If you're over on this side, you're stuck with the always difficult to answer question, if God is sovereign, why do I feel like I'm a free agent? You're left with that. I think there's a way to answer it. But you're also left with the idea that since God is sovereign, I am secure in Christ. And I want to be on this side, both because it's more comfortable, but more importantly, because I think that's what Scripture teaches. Okay? So this Arminian-Calvinist thing is really very important. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that if you're an Arminian or if you have Arminian friends, I'm not saying they're heretics. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. Don't go that far. Okay. On the issue of depravity... The Arminian would say, as a result of the fall, man inherits a corrupt nature, but this thing called prevenient grace, that means before you come to Christ, prevenient, before you come, prevenient grace removes the guilt and condemnation of Adam's sin from every single person. Everybody gets prevenient grace. 
This means that everybody is on an even footing. Okay, that's what the Arminian says. A Calvinist says that as a result of the fall, man is totally depraved, and he's dead in sin, and he cannot save himself, and this is big here. That means that God must initiate salvation. None of us ever had this great idea. Let's go to God and see what he's got for me. Okay? The Calvinist says that that's not what happens. Evaluation, Calvinist view is correct. Okay? A number of scriptures indicate this. This is in your notes. It's in a chart. Um, I don't think we will go through those. Now, on any of these, if you want some clarification, I'm willing to go through the scriptures. So don't be afraid to stop me. Okay? I think most of you are already uh, pretty straight on these issues, but I think we need to talk them over. Can I have five more minutes? Yes? Okay. All right, the imputation of sin. The Arminian says that God does not impute Adam's sin to the race. I think we've talked about Romans 5 in here already. We argued that there it says that God does impute Adam's sin to the race. They say that all men inherit a corrupt sin nature from Adam, but in the previous slide they said that's erased by prevenient grace. Okay? A Calvinist says that because of Adam's sin, sin is imputed to the entire race by God. God does that to us. Okay? Again, the Calvinistic view is correct. Now catch this. Both federal headship, which Arminians deny, they say that Adam is not the legal representative of the race, and God does not impute Adam's sin to us. And seminal headship, which Calvinists emphasize, Calvinists emphasize seminal headship because they say, when Paul says, we sinned in Adam, it's not just a legal thing, it's actually a genetic thing. Okay, When Adam became a sinner, that set in effect, uh, set in motion a sequence of events that led to the fact that when every one of us is conceived, we are sinners by nature. The sin of Adam is not just imputed to us, it is transmitted to us. Okay? It's not just legal, it's actual. Now, Calvinists emphasize federal headship and they emphasize seminal headship, generally. Arminians will deny federal headship. I think they admit seminal headship, but they say that prevenient grace essentially erases it. <laughs> Where do they get that idea? Um, Arminianism is basically a logical system built on certain presuppositions. And one of their presuppositions is that man is a free agent. And they take that idea and they sort of shove it backwards through the grid of scripture and they kind of move the dominoes so it fits in there. Okay? And I can make a nasty jab about limited atonement here, but I won't. How can they jive that, though, with the nature of God? Well, ultimately, ultimately what they're doing leads to the denial of certain scriptural truths. Okay? You know, an Arminian, an Arminian, if you push him to the wall, has to admit that he's denying the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, 
a good godly Arminian would say, I'm not denying the sovereignty of God anywhere else, but you know what? If you deny it in salvation, you've effectively denied it everywhere else. Because if God has to follow us in one way, then is he God? He's not. Okay? Um, so, you know, you, you guys are right on target. Okay? This, this thing, it just doesn't work. But it's, it's an effort, you know, this, by the way, historically, Arminianism arose in the early days of the Reformation, which was, you know, the early days of the Renaissance when humanism and a high view of man's intellect and his capabilities was becoming very popular in thinking. And people were really convinced that, you know, men are free agents and they're inherently good and you know that, that that thinking just sort of crept its way in and people who held those ideas just were unwilling to surrender them in order to embrace the truths the scripture states you know the, the gospel is an offense isn't it and it's an offense because it tells us the truth about ourselves and we don't want to see it you look in the mirror of Scripture, and it's pretty ugly. So, I really think that's what's going on with Arminianism. Let's do one more, and then we'll stop. Okay? Election. The Arminians believe that God elected those, he chose those whom he knew would believe of their own free will. God's election is thus conditional, and it's based on God's advanced perception of man's faith response. A person becomes elect because God sees that he is the kind of person who would believe the gospel if it was presented to him. Okay? That just won't stand up to Scripture, will it? Because Scripture says that without the initiative of the Holy Spirit, there is no person who will believe the gospel if it's presented to him. Isn't that what it says? Okay. Calvinism says God unconditionally elected some to be saved and election is not based on man's response. Okay, Again, the Calvinistic view is correct. Now, it's interesting that passage we've been looking at in Romans where it says whom he foreknew those he also predestined our understanding of that passage is informed by this argument. Okay? The Arminian view of Romans 8, 29 to 30 is linguistically possible. The idea that election is based on foresight does fit the words of Romans 8, 29 and 30. The reason we know it's not true is that it doesn't fit the other teaching of Scripture. Right? It doesn't fit the nature of God. Exactly. And how do we know the nature of God? from elsewhere in scripture. It doesn't fit the nature of man. Okay? So, if you're ever having an argument with an Arminian and you take them to Romans 8, 29 to 30 and you don't go anywhere else in scripture, guess what? You're going to lose. I mean, he's, he's not saying about those who well, the problem is that word prognosco can mean to foreknow facts. 
Okay? That's why I say linguistically that is a possible understanding of the words. We know that's not the meaning that the Holy Spirit was expressing because that meaning is inconsistent with other portions of Scripture. Okay, and this, you know, this is a perfect example of where the analogy of Scripture allows you to clarify a passage that is not clear by itself. Okay? Alright. If it was all knowing, then why would he have to look forward through time to learn something about you? Well, they would say that that's part of his all knowingness, though. Okay? It's, it's not like, oh, by the way, I better check that out. It's like he knows it all already. And he does know so it all that already. Be more like abrogation than like looking at something that happened and then going back and changing the book? Well, yeah. And what you're pointing out is that this is essentially is an averting of the order of the, the decrees. Okay? It has to do with the, the logical order of the decrees. And what you're saying is that God's sovereign election precedes his knowledge of who will be saved. His knowledge of who will be saved, in a sense, is based on his choice of who will be saved. And that's sort of how it works out. Yeah. If you keep on thinking about this, just brain your brain. If you were talking to an Armenian, where else would you take them to in a short time? Okay, I would take them to Ephesians chapter one, where it's, uh, chapter 2, where it says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Mm-hmm. I'd take them to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that says... Unbelievers are blinded by the God of this age. Um, where else would I take them? Where's the Acts, uh, in Acts where it says they were granted repentance? Okay, that's a good one. Okay, that's a good one. Repentance is a gift. I take them to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For as grace, by grace you were saved mm-hmm. through faith. And this is not of yourself. This is the gift of God. Now, those are some, some of the places I would go to. Um, Romans 1 to 3, no one seeks after God. All are sinners and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, you know, the whole concept of spiritual blindness is really at the heart of this. If man is truly depraved and truly spiritually blind, you know, then he's as incapable of responding to the gospel without God first acting upon him as we are incapable of watching TV without a TV set. It's very much like that. Okay. Let's pray and uh, we'll pick it up again next week. Okay. Let's pray. Father, the time goes very fast. Thank you for the things we've been able to discuss Thank you for my brothers and sisters who think deeply and for the way that they are with me uh, wrestling over the truths of your word. Father, please grant us patience regarding the things that we don't comprehend now and yet give us conviction regarding the things that we have seen clearly in your word. Pray also that you would Comfort us with the knowledge that your sovereignty is a good thing. It's because you are sovereign that we are secure and that our hope is real. Please dismiss us with your protection. Guide us through the remainder of the week. Make us sensitive to the promptings of your spirit and useful to you in ministry 
and as a means of shining the light of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. <coughs>